You can open to Luke chapter 22. We've been walking paragraph by paragraph through Luke. Somebody reminded me this morning, they said, I've read Luke three times since you started preaching it. And I looked at him and said, okay. He said, well, I read the Bible once a year. Meaning you've been walking through this for three years. We're really close to the end, all right? Uh, Luke chapter 22, we'll be in verses 7 through about 20 there. Many of you will remember uh, President Bill Clinton, former President Bill Clinton, trying to wiggle out of what we might call his indiscretion and his lying by pressing the meaning of the word is, right? He offended everyone's intelligence by saying, well, that depends on what the definition of is, is. Well, long before Bill Clinton, there was actually a raging theological debate around the word is. There's been centuries of arguing surrounding Jesus' words, the words that Nate read for us earlier, when Jesus says, this bread is my body, this cup is my blood. The Roman Catholics developed a view that, that took Jesus' words quite literally there. They took is to be, that, that, that when you partake of the Lord's Supper, the bread and the cup actually are the body and bread of Jesus, that they become the body and bread of Jesus, that you are actually feasting on his flesh, you are partaking of him, but not in a way, and I'm not being rude, this is what, this is, this is what they say, not in a way that's, that's obvious to the senses, or you might say, not in a way that your taste buds can tell. During the Reformation, Martin Luther then argued against the Roman Catholic position, saying, no, is means something different. Is there, this bread is my body, means not, not that they become the blood and the body of Jesus, but that the presence of Jesus is in, with, it's under, it's all around the elements in when, or when you take the Lord's Supper. There was another reformer named Ulrich Zwingli. He was a contemporary of Martin Luther, and he argued that is means something else. He argues that is is meant metaphorically, that Jesus is instituting a symbol. He argued that if Jesus stood before his disciples and pointed to the bread and said, this is my body, they would have clearly understood that to be a figure, a, a figure of speech, a metaphor. In fact, he pointed to Luther's view and he said, you know, actually, if we take is to be literal, he told Luther this, we don't arrive at your position, we arrive at the Roman Catholic position. Well, this morning, we, we dive into the text, and we want to examine the teaching of Jesus. And, and we, we have a position, we'll, we'll argue for a position, but our goal this morning is not primarily to resolve, uh, uh, you know, engage in long-standing theological debate. Instead, we want our minds, we, we, I would say this, we want to be theologically precise not so that we can be precise, but so that our minds might drift back to Calvary to be reminded of what Jesus has actually accomplished for us, to have our strength, our faith strengthened by recalling the work that God has accomplished in demonstrating His immeasurable love toward us in Christ Jesus through the giving of His body and the shedding of His 
blood. And so that's what we want to do from our text this morning. What we sometimes miss as we come to Luke 22, we want to get so quickly to the Lord's Supper. What does it mean? How should we practice it? What does Jesus mean by is? We kind of miss that, that this is all actually centered around the observance of the Passover. And that's why This is often called the Last Supper. It's the last time that Jesus will observe this meal with his disciples, the Passover meal. And what Jesus is going to do, as you'll see, is he's going to use the Passover as a way to anticipate his sacrificial death on our behalf. So in our text, as we kind of walk through this, I think you'll see there's these two events that Jesus is going to hold up and they parallel each other. And so... In, in one sense, Jesus is going to look back to the Passover, back to the Exodus, and we'll explain that. If you haven't grown up in church, been around church, Passover, Exodus, those don't, we'll talk about that. But what he's going to do is he's going to take up this event, and he, from his perspective and time, he's also looking forward to his death. He's also looking forward to his um, sacrificial death on the cross. So we want to take both of those in order here. Let's look back at the Passover And then we'll see how Jesus then looks forward to his cross. Point number one this morning, looking back at the uh, Passover there in verses 7 through 13, we see it's the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb is to be sacrificed. Now chapter 22 opened with the betrayal of Jesus. It said, as the Passover and as the day of unleavened bread are drawing Near. Well, in verse 7, they're here. All right. It's the day, Luke calls it the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb was to be sacrificed. And so we've already described that these two events are sort of uh, combined into one in the mind of Luke here in verse 7. And this is just the way it was described. In the Old Testament, they were technically two separate events but they're treated as one here. And so as Jesus goes to prepare for the Passover, he calls two of his most trusted disciples to go prepare the meal. He calls over uh, Peter and John there in verse 8, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. Now these these preparations, we could kind of go back into Exodus 12. We'll, we'll look a little bit into Exodus 12 in a minute. But these preparations would include, you know, getting a lamb, procuring a lamb. Perhaps they already did that a few days before. But take the lamb to the temple and have that lamb sacrificed. They would need to gather the, the bitter herbs that were to be eaten with the meal, gather the wine. Get the unleavened bread and make sure that's prepared because that would go along with the roast lamb that they were to eat. And they had to get this all prepared. They had to do all the cooking and everything ahead of time. They, they, they understood what it took to prepare a Passover meal. This was not new to them. But, you know, they're, they're in Jerusalem, right? They, none of them were from Jerusalem. So they, their, their question to Jesus is not what do we do, but where are we supposed to do this? You know, they couldn't draw straws and we're doing it at your house. So Jesus tells them then that they should go into the city and look for a man carrying a jar of water uh, and, and meet him. Right? And we might be thinking like, okay, 
can I get one more detail at least, <laughs> right? You, can, you could hardly do that in Custer, much less Jerusalem that's busy. But in reality, in those days, it actually would have been quite rare for a man to be carrying a jar of water. That would typically be, um, in that culture, the, the job of a, a woman. And so that would be a unique characteristic that they could point to and identify there. Perhaps this man was a servant in the house of the master in which this meal will be observed. And so when they meet this man carrying the jar of water, they're supposed to follow him to the house, and they're supposed to tell the master, show us the room. The master needs, your, needs a room to observe the Passover meals, and he will show the disciples, and they can there make the preparations that they know how to make. Now the text says, that things happened every, in every way that Jesus said it would happen. Now, whether this is something Jesus has prearranged or it's another example, we've seen things like this where it was clear from the text that it was an example of God's sovereignty bringing about the details and his omniscience. We aren't exactly told in this text uh, which of these is true. But we are given this sort of I know we just walked through it relatively quickly, but as you're reading it, it's kind of an extended description of preparing the Passover, where to do it, how to do it. And so when you come to things like passages like this in, in the Bible, right? the Bible covers such a large uh, swath of history that the details become important. Right? We joke that when it says like Joseph was handsome, it's like, okay, that's going to become important later. Because not a lot of people are described that way. Well, here, we, we do want to ask, like, what's the deal with this being here? Why wouldn't Luke just say, eh, you know, Jesus had them go prepare the Passover, and they did it? Who, who cares where they really meet? Why does Luke, in other words, here's what, here's what we're asking of the text. Why does Luke slow down the narrative and describe to us what would be kind of these mundane details about the preparation of the Passover. And here's, here's what I think Luke is doing in, in these details. It's forcing us, it's forcing the reader to slow down and focus on what's about to happen. Right? I think this is Luke's way of saying like, hey, pay attention here. Don't just gloss over this in, in one line. We aren't, we aren't kind of zooming by this narrative. This meal matters. This meal is important. It's one of the most important narratives in this book. Slow down and let's think about it. So that's what we want to do this morning. And we want to start by thinking about the Passover that's mentioned five times in chapter 22. Five times the Passover is mentioned in this chapter. So in verse 7, it's the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb was to be sacrificed. Now, both these events, again, that we argued are sort of treated as, as one, even in verse 7, you can see that. They were both designed as a way to commemorate the exodus when God freed his people from slavery to Egypt. And this was, this was a deliverance of, of epic proportions. Now, you can read about it. Really, the, the movement of the story kind of begins all the way back in Genesis 36 when, when God kind of begins to move Joseph into Egypt. And Joseph providentially 
rises through, through various events of suffering and hardship and elevation, and he eventually rises to second in command in all of Egypt. And then a famine hits, hits the extended area, and so his family, unbeknownst to them, Joseph is alive and is in this position, unbeknownst to them, they've got to come to Egypt to get resources, and so they end up in Egypt, and they begin to, to multiply, and they begin to grow this, this people that God had long ago promised would become this great nation. And though Joseph was admired and exalted in Egypt, there eventually came a day where Joseph was was not known or, or honored. There was new leadership in Israel who had long forgotten Joseph, and they're looking at the Israelites who are growing like crazy, and they say, you know what? we got to do something about this. They might become so numerous that they can then overthrow us from the inside out. And so what did they do? They, they enslaved the people of Israel. They brought them under their strong arm and their dominion so as to keep them from growing too big and too powerful and uh, be able to overthrow their nation. And so the people cry out in their distress. They're enslaved. They cry out and God hears them and He acts on their behalf. And if you read Exodus, He acts because He, he remembers or He calls to mind. It's, it's not that He forgot. He chooses to act on the promise that He made to Abraham. He's a faithful God. So He hears their prayer and He acts for His people. Right, I love the way Exodus 2 ends. It says, God saw the people of Israel. And then it just has this phrase, and God knew. And God knew. And that's all it took. He knew, and he's faithful, and he's going to act. And so God calls Moses to be an instrument in leading his people out of captivity. Moses confronts Pharaoh, but his heart is hardened. And so God brought judgment to Pharaoh and to Israel through a series of plagues. Right, The Nile turned to blood. I'm not going to go through all of them, but gnats and and hailstorms destroying crops and livestock dying, darkness over all the earth. There seems to be this kind of escalation in the plagues. They get worse and worse and worse. And through nine plagues, even though after each one, Pharaoh would say, now call it off and I'll let you go. And then the Lord would, would withhold his judgment and then Pharaoh's heart would be hardened and he would change his mind and he would double down on his enslavement of God's people and refused to let them go. Nine plagues hadn't humbled Pharaoh to the point of being willing to submit to God and allow Israel to go free. So there's this tenth plague that would be the worst judgment of them all. The angel of death would slay the firstborn in every family of both man and animal. The firstborn killed. And there would be weeping throughout all of Egypt when this final judgment fell. But God provided a means of escape. He provided a way uh, to be passed over from His wrath. If, if a family would take a spotless or an unblemished lamb, and they would sacrifice that lamb, and they would put the blood over the entryway of the house, then all those in the house would be marked safe when the judgment of God comes over Egypt. When the judgment of God 
came, it would pass over those people who were sleeping inside the home where the blood, where the lamb had been sacrificed and the blood had been applied. And when that day came, the Israelites would need to be able to flee quickly. So they were required to sleep with their sandals on and have their staff in hand. And you, you don't have time for the leaven to, to rise the bread. So you need to have unleavened Bread, we don't have time for that. You're going to have to flee quickly. So you see how the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread are so closely linked together. And that very night, when the final plague was complete, there was a great outcry in the land, and Israel, they, they plunder Egypt on the way out, and they flee, and they miraculously cross the Red Sea. And Israel has been miraculously freed and spared from the judgment by God's mighty and compassionate hand. So that's the, that's the events of the Passover. Right? If, if you read Exodus then, so what God did is He sets up this memorial to this incredible event. If you read Exodus even before the final plague, even before the exodus occurs, God establishes the observance of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, he says, as memorials to be kept, to look back at what God did in freeing Israel. Exodus 12, 14 says, This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord, you shall keep this day as a memorial. And every time you observe this, it will recall the events of what God has done in the past, right? That's what, that's what a memorial does. The purpose of a memorial is to establish something. You know, in our country, we have statues and we have days. We have, we have memorial day. We, we have these things that are established that are meant to serve as reminders. And so that's what the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were designed to do. And so every year, every year, the people of Israel would have their faith encouraged and their trust in God stirred. Even in exile, even as Israel was hauled off into captivity, they would keep the feasts remembering what God had done and encouraged that he could indeed do it again if he chose to. So even as Passover was, was observed, and especially in exile, you, they, they weren't just looking back. You might say they were also looking forward to the promises that God had given them, that he would establish a kingdom in which God's chosen servant would rule and reign in righteousness. So for 1,500 years, or whenever you want to date the Exodus, right? There's a couple of faithful dates I think we could argue for, but let's say 1,500 years. The Passover was observed by Israel. Lambs were offered as sacrifices. They were roasted, eaten with bitter herbs and unleavened bread, and they had cups of wine that they would drink. And this tradition... Continues all the way down to Jesus' family. Remember uh, three years ago when we were in the beginning of Luke and uh, Jesus' family, faithful Israelites, where do they go when Jesus is 12? Where, where are they found? They're in Jerusalem observing the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And it continued until this night. 
until the night that's in our text. The night where Jesus meets with his disciples. And so this is the meal. This is the Passover meal that has been prepared by John and Peter. And this is the meal then that Jesus takes and he uses it to anticipate a new covenant that he's going to establish with his very blood soon after, just after these, this meal. So point number two this morning, looking forward to the cross. And when the hour came, he reclined at table, this is verse 14, and the apostles with them. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. You, as we look at this next paragraph, as significant as the Passover was, as significant an event as the Passover represents, Jesus takes the symbolism that's present in the Passover and he points forward to an even greater work of God. The Passover pointed back to a temporary deliverance, a temporary freedom from Egyptian bondage. But we saw over and over and over, what would Israel do? They'd rebel against God and God would judge them with another nation. They'd be back in exile. The Passover pointed to a temporary deliverance while the death of the Lamb of God would accomplish eternal salvation. Passover lambs would be sacrificed year in and year out. We said for 1,500 years, sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice. Jesus is anticipating an even greater work where He becomes the sacrifice once and for all. I wonder if you think about the gospel that way. As, as having in your mind the great work of God that it is. I wonder if you read the plagues in Exodus you read about the parting of the Red Sea. You read about, you know, pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night, and you think, boy, I wish I could see God work like that. Wouldn't that be cool? But we're reminded this morning that the work of Christ, this gospel that we preach, this gospel that we remember in, in a very tangible way, and we'll do it this morning through communion, is greater work than even the Exodus. It's the clearest way we see God's majesty and His glory and His holiness and His love on full display. The work of Christ will supersede even the Passover. And that's why I think Jesus takes the Passover and He says, watch what I do with this. Watch what I do with this. So the hour comes in verse 14. It's time. Right? Just like the Israelites back in Exodus chapter 12, they were to get their lamb a few days before they were going to slaughter it. The hour has come for Christ. Right? Another innocent life is being prepared. And he's gathered his disciples together to observe this Passover meal. And Jesus says a couple things in verses 16 and 17 that I think are, are pretty shocking given what the Passover was meant to be. First, he says that he has earnestly desired to eat this Passover before he suffers. Before he suffers. Right? We've been arguing that Jesus is in absolute control of all these events. Right? We argued that he, down to the chief priest betraying him, down to Judas betraying him. Nate read it earlier. 
Um, for the Son of Man, in verse 22, goes as it has been determined. As it has been determined. So when Jesus grabs his trusted disciples and says, hey, go, go prepare the Passover, just you two. I don't want Judas in on this plan. It wasn't to avoid suffering. It wasn't to avoid it. It was so that the suffering would fall at the exact moment that God intended for the suffering to come. He has earnestly desired this meal, earnestly desired to eat this meal with his disciples, knowing that it points to his suffering. The second thing Jesus says that is uh, surprising in a meal that's meant to look backwards is that he actually looks even, even past the cross to the establishment of the kingdom. Right? He brings up the coming kingdom in verse 16 and in verse 18. He says, I will not partake of this until I do it in the kingdom of God. Now, I think it's, I think it's clear contextually that Jesus partook of this Passover meal. I think, so I think it's best to say, like he's saying, I will not partake of this again until the kingdom of God comes. So Jesus has just wrapped up this long section on the return of the Son of Man. And here he, he sort of anticipates, again, this, this intervening period where he will not be physically present with his people. Instead, he points to a feast that he will share with all of his people in the kingdom of God. And so the theme of eschatology, the, the theme of the end, the theme of the, the return of Christ, the theme of the kingdom of God and the, the rule and reign of Christ, it's not, it's not missed on this passage. It's still infiltrating our text. And I think this helps us understand the emphasis when the Apostle Paul talks about what, what to do in 1 Corinthians when you take communion. Really, he's kind of blasting the Corinthians for abusing communion. What does he say? He says, when you take communion, you're proclaiming the Lord's death through this observance of the Lord's Supper until he comes. You know, I used to, I used to understand kind of intellectually, okay, the, the Lord's Supper is tied to his coming, but I didn't, I didn't understand that it's because Jesus did that. Because Jesus established that and said, I'm going to partake of this, a celebratory meal again with you when the kingdom comes. That's why Paul looks forward to this return and, and in the Lord's Supper then longing for the return of Christ. When we don't need a little cracker and a little cup of juice to remind us of the sacrifice of Christ because He's there. He's with us. It also alerts us to a huge shift that's happening in the way God is working in this world. Jesus says, I'm not going to observe the Passover until I do it again in the kingdom of God. This is, this is a huge shift in what we might call salvation history. Jesus is changing the requirements for Passover, for his people. One commentator said it this way, that Jesus would speak of a future event in the middle of a meal that looks back to the Exodus as highly suggestive. He compares salvific eras, one past and the other yet to come. The old, let me just say it this way. The old covenant is passing away. The new covenant is about to be established with the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, with all that, 
hopefully we're ready to look at the words of Jesus in verse 19 and 20. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So we see that, again, Jesus is kind of picking up aspects of the Passover, celebrating the sacrificial death of a lamb that saves people from the wrath of God, and he's, he's anticipating something completely new, completely different. He takes some of that unleavened bread and he gives thanks to God for it. You know, this would have been one piece of bread that's kind of broken apart and distributed for our sakes. You know, Barb goes ahead and does that for us. Thank you, thank you, Barb. But it's broken and it would be shared among the group. But instead of saying this unleavened bread represents the quickness with which Israel would have to flee Egypt. Right? Jesus doesn't say that. He doesn't say this unleavened bread. It pictures the Exodus on the night of the Passover. Remember, they had to eat unleavened bread. No, he says, this bread or this is my body, which is given for you. Jesus takes up the imagery of the Passover and he reinterprets or reestablishes a new symbol. The bread represents the incarnate sinless body of Jesus that will soon be nailed to a cross. You know, we sort of tease it in the, in the introduction about different views of, of is, 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 literal or figurative. Well, I probably tipped my position earlier, but Jesus is standing amongst the disciples when He says this. When he, says, when he holds up the bread, he says, this is my body. Surely they would have understood that to be this bread signifies or represents my body because it's going to be broken for you. Sometimes to understand someone literally, you must understand when they're using figurative language. Right? If I, if I were to say, you know, I went to Custer Middle School girls basketball to watch a couple of our girls compete last week and you know what they were beasts out on the court that's a compliment by the way if you don't but you would misunderstand me if you took me so literally that you thought they were animals out on the court you need to understand me figuratively in order to understand me literally I hope that Makes sense, happy to talk about it more, but we might just say it this way. Like the Passover was a memorial, so too is the Lord's Supper. It is a tangible way for His people to remember what Jesus accomplished for us at the cross. And as the bread represents the the body of Jesus given for us, the wine represents the shed blood of Jesus Christ. As the cup is poured out, so will the blood of Jesus be poured out. And this, Jesus says, this cup, this shedding of blood, this is the new covenant, He says. The new covenant in my blood. So in our text, what Jesus is doing 
the supper is not the institution of the new covenant, but it does anticipate the institution of the new covenant that's coming within a matter of hours. It would be the shedding of blood that would establish this new covenant. Now, the old covenant was established with Israel, and it was temporary by design. If you're wondering, what are we talking about, old covenant, new covenant? Old covenant, read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's, just do that. That's easy, right? Um, but the old covenant given to Israel was temporary by design. It was meant to pass away. Here's how Jeremiah describes the, the new covenant. He kind of looked forward and said, it's coming. He says in Jeremiah 31, 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. He made a covenant with them when he brought them out of Egypt. It was the Mosaic covenant, the old covenant. And this new covenant, he says, is not going to be like that covenant. Though my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. And that's what Jesus is saying I've come to do. Now part of the mystery of the gospel is that this covenant goes not just to Israel, but to the nations. Think about Hebrews 9.15. Therefore, He is the mediator of a new covenant. That's talking about Jesus. So that those who are called, called to salvation, may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. What's the new covenant? What's, what's it about? It's about, well, one, and we'll, we can deal with this later, but the gift of the Holy Spirit, the law written on the heart, new life, regeneration that allows a person to keep the law. But before any of that, it's the forgiveness of sins through a new covenant that will be made by the offering of a lamb. And this is what Jesus has come to do, to offer mercy and forgiveness of sins, to bring a new and a better covenant where sins are, are forgotten and not counted against us based on nothing but faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and His death and resurrection on our behalf. And you see really clearly in, in the text that Jesus is instituting a practice with His apostles. It's interesting that Luke used the word apostles here, not just disciples kind of anticipating the sending out of these apostles who are going to establish the church through the preaching of the gospel. It's clear that Jesus is instituting a practice that the apostles will then pass down to churches that they will go on to establish. You know this is not a one-time thing because Jesus looks at them and says, do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus hasn't left yet in the upper room. So he, he, it is obvious 
that he's instituting something that will continue after his departure, his, his death, resurrection, ascension to the right hand of the Father. After his departure, there will be something that you will do that will be designed so that you can remember what I've done for you. Right? It doesn't make any sense if this is just a one-time deal and Jesus is saying, do this and remember it to me, but he's right there while they're doing it. So when we, this morning, when we participate in the Lord's Supper, we look back on, we meditate on, we think about our deliverance from sin, death, and hell. And we think about what Jesus accomplished for us at Calvary. As the Passover lamb was sacrificed and the blood would be spread on the mantle so another sacrifice would bring about this new covenant and shield people from the just wrath and judgment of God. It is on the basis of the shed blood of Christ that the forgiveness of sins is made available. You see, we can't miss the, the sacrificial language in the text. This bread, Jesus says, is given for you. This cup, it's poured out for you. The blood is shed for you in your place. This is one reason we take time, and maybe I'll save Dan some time this morning, but this is one reason we take time before we observe the Lord's Supper to explain who should partake of the Lord's Supper. It is for those who are trusting in in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, because it is for those who can say, His blood was shed for me. If He has done this For you, if you're trusting in Christ this morning, then we invite you to partake of communion or the Lord's Supper with us. We invite you to take the bread and, and the cup and to remember the sacrifice of Christ. But if you're not a Christian yet this morning, I I would encourage you this way. There's nothing magical about the bread. There's nothing magical about the juice. So when we, when we say that this is for Christians, we're not withholding something magical that can actually save you or, or help you in any way with your relationship with God. It cannot help you. Instead, we're simply saying this, wait, wait to observe the memorial till you're trusting in what the memorial points to. And you can believe this morning. You can believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can have the blood, his shed blood applied to you so that God's judgment will never come upon you. You'll never experience a, a, an ounce of his wrath. His work can be applied to you by simple reliance. Throwing your own self-righteousness out of the way and just saying, Christ, there's only one way. I understand. It's because of what you've done. This sacrifice is for you. When we were living in Missouri, just a, a ways down the road, there was a, a story in the news about a father and a daughter who had gone out camping. And as the, the night grew on, the, the weather became worse and worse and worse. And a tornado came through and it had knocked over this tree. And dad, knowing that, that this storm was not a normal storm, had sort of 
huddled over his, his daughter to protect her, and the tree fell, and it, it killed the dad, but it saved the daughter. And as I think about the work of Christ, that's what it was. The tree of God's wrath was coming upon us. We, we deserve that. And Jesus takes the full force, the full brunt of that, so that we might be completely safe. He becomes our substitute. He does this for us. He becomes our propitiation, our wrath-bearing sacrifice. I was listening a while back to D.A. Carson, and he was teaching on the Passover, and he, he shared this, you know, sort of a, a fictional conversation between two Jewish people um, on the eve of the Passover. And he said that, you know, in this sort of fictional instance, he says one guy approaches another and says, boy, you know, are you a little nervous about tonight? Are you a little bit scared about what's going to happen? I mean, this is scary stuff. Firstborn killed. And the second guy says, man, God has told you what to do. Sacrifice the lamb, spread the blood. You've done that, haven't you? And the first guy says, yeah, I did that. I did that. But I still, I, I, I don't know, it's just I'm a little nervous. The other one responds, I'm not. You know, I'm looking forward to marching out of here tomorrow morning with my entire family intact. And D.A. Carson said, which, which one of them lost their firstborn that night? Which one of them lost their son? The answer is neither one. Because they weren't spared based on the strength or the vitality of their faith. They were spared based on the blood that was spread on the doorposts. And the guy who was a little bit nervous had enough faith to act on what he'd been told. And when the angel of death passed through, he passed over his house, the same as the guy who said, I can't wait to walk out of here that day. They're spared on the basis of the blood of the Lamb. The same is true for us. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. We look back and we allow our minds to, to drift to Calvary and we see the cost of our sin and we feel the joy of knowing that it's been completely atoned for, completely erased. We remember. We remember. And what are we remembering? We're actually remembering that God doesn't remember. Hebrews 8.12 says this, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. We remember, and He forgets. Let's pray. Lord God, thank You. Thank You for the work of Christ. Thank You for our salvation. Thank You for Your wisdom in giving us a way to tangibly hold and taste and see and be reminded of His work. Thank you for all you've done for us in Christ and through giving us your Holy Spirit, through your kindness, in Jesus' name, amen.